A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Please be warned that the following episode contains discussions of sexual assault, racism, and violence against women. I'm Karen Pugliese. I'm the host and producer of Canada Landback. Canada Landback is a co-production by Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. This is a Haudenosaunee creation story read by Canada Landback associate producer, Beverly Andrews. The Haudenosaunee people tell us that long, long ago, there was no land, just water and the creatures of the water. But up above, there was a place called the Sky World. One day, a pregnant Sky Woman fell through a hole, and as she fell, she grabbed seeds from the Tree of Life. Some geese saw Sky Woman falling. They caught her and lowered her onto a turtle's back. She gave thanks to the animals, but explained she needed land and food to survive. The water animals dove to the bottom of the ocean, and after many tries, a muskrat managed to bring mud up from the ocean floor. Sky Woman sang and danced. The turtle shell grew and the mud multiplied. She scattered the seeds from the tree of life, and there was land and plants as far as she could see. She would give birth to a daughter who would marry the west wind and bear twin sons. The boys grew up and continued the work of Grandmother Sky Woman. They created everything that is found in the natural world today, including human beings. The first time I visited Mohawk Territory, Genawage in southern Quebec, I met a traditional chief, one of the Longhouse people, or Haudenosaunee. He greeted me in the Ganyankeha language, only I'm not Mohawk, I'm Algonquin. So I didn't understand. Then he said the most curious thing. He told me I was sacred. I was puzzled and he repeated patiently, women are sacred. I didn't feel very sacred. Indigenous women get treated like shit most of the time. There were people in my life who made me feel valued, but that's different from being valuable. 
Sacred felt more like being valuable. He'd put a new thought in my head, and I wondered, what if I started to live my life as if I believed that? I've since met women who are doing that. They are setting the example by reclaiming their roles as mothers, teachers, leaders, and sacred beings. And those are the stories we're looking at today on Canada Landback. Because Landback is not just about real estate. It's also about reclaiming who we are as Indigenous people and as Indigenous women. I need to warn you though, I thought this would be a story about hope. But when it all came together, it wasn't. And that's okay, because the truth is, we're not at a point of hope yet. Instead, these are stories of resilience. In this episode, I asked three women five questions. And their stories tell us how they've confronted colonialism and violence to take back their place as life givers, teachers, leaders, and sacred beings. My name is David Mackay, the host of Hot Politics, a podcast about the things that matter. The air you breathe, the food you eat, the information you depend on to make informed decisions. These are the issues we care deeply about at Canada's National Observer, where I work as the deputy managing editor with a smart and dedicated team. As someone who has watched politics up close on Parliament Hill in Ottawa for many years, I saw the spin, the bending of truth, the mudslinging. But I also saw dedicated advocates determined to make a difference. It's this insight and passion I bring to hot politics. Hot? Because we turn up the heat, probing advocates, policymakers, lawmakers, and yes, politicians. So please join me every second Tuesday to be part of an important conversation. Talk to you soon. My name is Kaftika Terry Brown. I'm uh, from the Caltan Nation in northwestern BC. Beverly Jacobs. I'm Mohawk from Six Nations Grand River Territory. Annie Bojo, Nagansakwe and Dishnakaz, Wabjishi and Dodum, Shimnising Donjabal, Anishinaabe Badawatami Kwe and Dao. My name is Tori Kress. I'm from Chimnising, which is Bosley First Nation. I'm Ojibwe and Potawatomi. I'm also European as well. The first question I asked Terry Bev and Tori was, what was the role of traditional women in your community? We are the, uh, the holders of rights to everything. Rights to land, rights to fish in our area, the Crow culture. The Crow people, we are known to to actually own, not own the river in terms of, you know, Eurocentric ideas, but the river is ours to protect and to hold and to make sure that it's there forever. And the women are the rights to where you fish and hunt, where you live, all of this. So the man would marry into the woman's clan, probably Back then, you know, they would be quite young, so they would stay with with the mother's family and uh, the man would learn everything about, you know, because he would have 
his rights would only uh, go as far as uh, his women um, women's rights, the, his wife. I come from a really strong matriarchal society, which is part of the the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. The role of of the female leadership uh, are clan mothers who take the responsibility of uh, leading the, our clans, and they nominate or appoint the male leadership according to their uh, their clans. Uh, our identity is through our mothers. So when I say that I'm Mohawk Bear Clan, well, that comes from my mother, my mother's mother, tracing it all the way back to the establishment of the great law. So it's always been the strength of our women and our culture to carry on those leadership roles, even through our medicines, through our ceremonies, our faith keepers as well. There's a balance as well. So it's not only the leadership role of women, but there's always a balance between genders, uh, between male and female. So the traditional role of women is like something that I never even thought about before because I was raised white and I was so disconnected from my culture in that environment. So this is all things that just came to me so much later in my life and learning. So I'm still learning. Some of the first things I did, like even traditionally, uh, I was learning from young girls. I still feel very young in, in discovering the role of women in our culture. But I mean, I really see the kinship, you know, the kinship caring is really, you know, center of, of it. My second question, how did colonialism change the role of women? Here is Terry, Bev, and Tori. We've been so influenced so much by, um, you know, ownership, about resources, about getting rich, you know, that I think we've lost sight. We've allowed, um, well, the white people to just take us over. And if we had, I'm thinking that if we had held that in the highest regard, and not allowed it to, well, we didn't have a lot of choice either. You know, kids were taken and families were disrupted and eroded. But, um, you know, if we had that intact, I don't think we'll have any issues today. Colonialism impacted. I don't want to say it changed, but there's been impacts from colonization, the impacts of, of patriarchy and the impacts of of violence, so that when colonialism came in, when that whole, whole male patriarchy came into our territories, uh, really impacted our men and our women and the responsibilities that we have according to our own lot. And you know, when the colonizers came here on their ship, they came here with that Victorian rule that women didn't have rights, they didn't, they had no agency they they were property of men that was totally different than how our culture how our ways how our laws were with women being leaders and respected and their decisions respected 
Oh my gosh, that's a, such a heavy question. If I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, you know, my, my own mother, I didn't get to grow up with her yet. And I was so angry for so long. And I wanted her to be all these things for me. And I wanted her to do this. And, and I saw all these other people around me and their nuclear families. And I had really high expectations for my mother. And I was deeply wounded when she didn't meet those expectations. The more I learned through amazing people like Arthur Manuel, Sylvia McAdams, Linda Kitchikizik, like everybody who's shared with me, Sharon and Charmaine Whiteface, all these incredible people have shared their wealth of knowledge with me without question. I ask a question here, read this, this is what you need to know. And the more I dove into our history of colonization, the more I understood how it impacted my family, how my, my mother, through no fault of her own, didn't have the skills you know, that she she needed to succeed as a parent. And I was so hard on her. I had this motherhood pedestal that I, I tried to push her up onto without knowing that she was part of those, you know, intergenerational effects of residential schools. She wasn't capable of providing me what I thought I needed, right, as a mother. I spent most of my life being angry at her and well, I regret it, but it was part of my growth and I'm trying not to feel guilty for how much I expected from her when she didn't have those skills to teach me. She didn't know how to nurture me because nobody taught her that. I thought about, I wonder how far back we go to where there was a parent sharing traditional ecological knowledge in my line, in my family line. It's pretty far back. When we were thinking about this episode, my team made a list of about 50 women whose stories we thought could be so powerful to share. Looking down at that list, we started to notice that pretty much all of their lives had been touched by missing and murdered Indigenous women. So this is a trigger warning that these next two sections discuss violence, assault, and missing and murdered Indigenous women, including the serial killer, Robert Picton from BC. Terry Brown and Bev Jacobs both became presidents of the Native Women's Association of Canada, and all three women are advocates for justice and safety. My third question to them was, how did the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women come into your life? Well, I uh, lived and worked in Vancouver for many years, you know, after I finished university and my kids grew up there and there were these women missing all the time, and we could, you know, nobody even could wrap their minds around what could it be. All this, when they were reported, and I worked for women's groups, when we reported them, they, they would say, oh, they're probably on vacation, or they're probably gone to Edmonton. And then I thought, if I'm ever in a position to make a difference, that's an issue I would definitely bring forward. And, of course, I never thought I would be president of women's organization, national organizations. And then when I landed at NWAC, um, that's exactly what I, I pursued. And um, my my own sister had uh, gone missing in Prince George and been killed there. And, and that was part of it as well. Um, but, you know, no one thing, you know, it's, it's my life. That's our reality. We're never safe. 
I've never been safe as a a brown-skinned person. We stuck together, like in residential school. Wherever we went, we went in a group, group of people we, we trusted. We knew from a very young age we were not safe. And I actually had heard whisperings from a very young age of some women who disappeared or were dumped somewhere. And that that just becomes a part of your being. And you think, you know, why don't we matter? Why why can people get away with this? You know, we go to New York and I, I give speeches on it and have little demonstrations and that. And then, and then it just kind of rolled along slowly. And then when we went to the Picton Farm and uh, started doing some publicity work, you know, communications there, um, people started listening a little bit more. And then when Picton was arrested and that kind of... Um, became more, we got more notice. So at that time, I was doing research for the Native Women's Association of Canada and for Amnesty. They were having an event to prepare for the World Conference Against Racism. And that's when the issue of um, missing and murdered Indigenous women came up from women who were sitting around the fire um, and talking about the issues, all of the issues that needed to be addressed in this report that was going to the World Conference Against Racism. And I remember, I think that's when I met Terry Brown. She was at that meeting, my career and my life where I end up in places where it's kind of unbelievable. Where I, where I ended up, and um, and so there were families that I had met along the way, just just in my consulting business, consulting career. So I had already had contact with some families, um, and I had thought that I the first the first um, family that I should have that that should have been contacted was. Helen Betty Osborne. So that's when I met with uh, some of the representatives of the family. I met with Darlene Osborne, and then, and then, finding out that her granddaughter niece was murdered in Winnipeg and found in the Red River. So I ended up going to Norway House, you know, and, and staying there for a while and and gathering. The information. So I I'd ended up having those kind of connections all the way across the country and meeting different families uh, and meeting and connecting. Um, it was hard work. It was really difficult, emotional, um, you know, spiritually. When I was hearing story after story after story all across the country and they were similar doing that work was going to the downtown east side in Vancouver and just that was the Picton trials, the Picton stuff that was going on and meeting with the elders that were working from the downtown east side and they took me out to to the property where where the women's bodies were found and you know that was that was something that I needed to do as well, just for my own well-being, I guess, for my own relationship with the spirits of those women. 
that one's crazy for me because being raised as a nice white Catholic girl, you know, I realized that, you know, the first time I was at risk in, in that world, you know, I was a child and I think I escaped being molested. I'm not going to lie. I think I escaped being molested by my principal at the school I went to. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, you know, when it was happening to me, I knew something was wrong. I was really terrified. And when he told me to go in his office, I didn't. And I, I ran and I, I don't know how I had money, but I had money to call my dad at work at the payphone right outside of the office. And I did. And I phoned my dad on the on the oil line down at Gulf Canada at the at the refinery he worked at. And he was there and I was like crying and telling him and this man was watching me from behind the windows of the office. And, and um, I was crying like, Dad, he's told me like I have to go to his office, you know, with, like and he's like, I want you to go right home right now. And and I did. And I went straight home. And, and that was like the the first time I understand now as an adult that I was at risk um, and I was a child, of, you know, but it's, it's affected me completely. Um, it did, you know, I was 13 years old when I was raped by a skinhead. I lived in around the Hamilton area at the time up on the escarpment. And after that, um, and, and all of his skinhead gang terrorized me. And I got gang raped on a regular basis till I ran away from the area when I was 16 years old. And that, like, I really believed the things they said to me, you know, they that, that impact that, you know, they used to tell me while they were raping me that I was nothing but a dirty squaw and this was all I was good for and I wouldn't be good for nothing but this. I believed that, you know, when I ran away, I was I was ashamed. I was so ashamed and I ran away to escape that. And I ran away from my loving father and the family he, you know, created for us because I didn't think I was worthy, you know, I didn't think I was worthy of anything. And I ran away and I ran away to appear to my indigenous family because I thought I knew they would hide me. I knew they would hide me because I grew up watching them hide people for each other, whether it was, you know, my mom taking my cousins so CAS didn't get them. But I knew that I could be safe with my with my Indian family, you know, that I'd be safer here with them. An elder told me this story. It was long ago in late summer in a remote northern village. Everyone still lived in tents. One day priests visited. They announced that the next time they came, they would take the children. It would be for the best, they explained. The children would go to school. The priests left, and some short time later, maybe a week, maybe two, they returned. This time the Mounties came with them. The Mounties wore red coats, black boots, and each Mountie wore a belt with a gun. The priests did as they promised. With the help of the Mounties, they piled the children into boats and floated away. That evening the villagers made their fires, cooked supper, and ate in silence. Their world was silent. No children played or laughed. No children quarreled or cried. The quiet became unbearable. The sun had not yet set, but the villagers crept into their tents anyway. Soon a sob broke the silence. It was a woman crying. Then another sob. 
then another woman. The sun sank orange, the yellow moon rose, and all night long the only sound heard in the village was mothers crying. Those schools were never meant to do us any good, the elder told me. They knew. They knew that when you break the hearts of our women, you break the strength of our nations. But they did not break us. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Question four. I asked Terry, Bev, and Tori to tell me about a moment where they needed to be strong and how they found their strength. One thing really stands out is um, it was a Valentine's Day march and it was after Picton was arrested. You know, he, he um, they found many of the fragments of uh, human remains on his farm, his pig farm. And I was at that Valentine's Day march, which happens every year in Vancouver. And I'd been to many of the marches. And a man came to me and he said, and I knew his sister was missing. And he was telling me, he said, it's very likely my sister's remains are on that farm, he said, because she went missing. And he said, he's been really struggling with that. And, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, I want to tell you something. He said, the families were told something that hasn't been publicized. He said, uh, there was on that pig farm, there was, you know, meat grinder, you know, for for preparing meat to sell. And he said, we think the bodies went into that. He said, that, that's what they're telling us. They're telling us 
you know, trying to prepare them. And um, so he was preparing me. Hearing that, I just froze. My And this is a survivor's um, response. I went into um, trauma mode. I was totally frozen. And I managed to get through the event and, you know, everything. And I thought, well, I'm going back to my room and, um, and you know, just relax. I'm really tired. And when I did, I couldn't get out of bed. I thought, jeez, uh, I wonder what's wrong with me. I wonder, why can't I get up? Why can't I move? Why can't I do anything? I just don't want to live, you know? And I wondered um, why I was in that state. And, and luckily, I phoned um, an elder, uh, my spiritual advisor, and my she's like a, she's a mother to me I call her mom and, and she said you know what you don't sound good and I said um, oh no 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 I'm fine I said I just seeing how you're doing and she said um, where are you at and I told her and she said well I'm coming in I said oh no don't bother I said you, you don't want to be traveling all that way but she came she came to the door and I think it was over a weekend um, she worked on me she just worked on me nonstop, and uh, she worked and worked and brought my spirit back. And um, at that time, I I didn't understand all of it, what, what was going on. I thought, yeah, I'm fine. What are you doing? And, you know, she said, no. She worked on me and brushed me and cleaned me and all weekend. And, I, you know, a few days later, she says, well, now you have to get up. I said, no, I'm tired. She said, no, you have to get on your feet. And she got me up and she said, you have a shower, we're going to eat and you have to continue. She said, you cannot give up. You cannot, it's it's what our struggle is. So she, she got me going again and got my spirit intact and it's just when some things are so shocking that you just you cannot even imagine the evil you know it it can be very traumatizing that was when my own cousin was found murdered so that was in 2008 it was uh, I think it was March March 2008, when one of my cousins had said, did you know that Tashina's been missing? And I had no idea. I was so involved with the work I was doing. And, you know, I was close to Tashina's mom, Denise, and she didn't even tell me that she was missing. So it was the beginning of March, and I was, like, on it right away. I was on the police. I was on, you know, what are we doing, what? what's being done in the public, you know, so there was a, a media release, a press conference, and and then her body was found in April, and that was probably the worst, the worst of the worst of the worst experience that I've ever been in, because her, her body was buried by one of our own Mohawk young men, and I thought, this is the worst, when I'm trying to teach about our laws about the respect of women and like this is just 
it was it was horrible and and then trying to support my family and I was still working I was still working at NWAC and it was horrible I know I was probably the the most angry at that time I was angry I was mad I was mad and I think I went back to work to maybe two weeks after you know, we have a 10-day process ceremonial process after death and I went back to work and had to meet with the Minister of Justice that was Vic Taves at the time. All I can remember, I was so much in grief and trauma. I know that I went to the meeting and I know that I met with him and he was sitting across the table from me, but I don't remember what I said. All I know is that I was so angry, but what I remember seeing is the minister's face turning red and his eyes were like bulging. <laughs> his eyes were like huge listening to me. And that's when I knew I couldn't do it anymore. Like I was too angry. I wasn't being, or I felt like I wasn't being diplomatic anymore. Mm-hmm. I learned how to be diplomatic, but but at that time, like I, there was no diplomacy in anything that I said. I'm pretty sure. And just that anger, it, it was so deep, and and just probably collective from all of the work of the missing, you know, the spirits of the women. And by that time, it was four years after. A stolen Sisters report and working with NWAC and felt like I was banging my head against the wall and trying to educate people and educate government, educate parliamentarians. That was enough. I couldn't do it anymore. And I felt like I wasn't being effective enough. And I had to go into counseling. Actually, that's when I started my PhD. I thought that was less stress than anything. I went into hiding for probably years, just working on my coursework in Calgary, like even the Indigenous community in Calgary didn't know I was there. Luckily, there was an Indigenous woman counselor there on campus who helped me to to deal with so much trauma for, for two years it took before I felt like I was comfortable enough to be in public again. That is when the Calgary Indigenous community figured out I was in Calgary and started asking me to participate in things and speak again and do public speaking and participating started again and helping in whatever way that I could while I was there. My strength comes from my spirit, from just from my who I am and where I come from and respecting my, my ancestors and really listening and paying attention. As people always ask me that, I remember like, I doing this work and nonstop. And he would always ask, where did you get your, how are you able to do what you're doing? And so I'm just doing it. It's just what I'm being asked to do in this lifetime. And so I'm, I'm just respecting that ceremony, participating in ceremony and healing ceremonies all of the time, whenever I, whenever I can. So for me, it's that well-being, like spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Um, Pretty sure that's what's helped me through all of it. So I ended up with somebody who was violent and alcoholic because I saw that growing up, right? Um, I saw that in my formative years when my parents were together. And so that was my normal, right? And then I repeated that. And I didn't want that for my kids. And I knew there was better. So... I had to leave him, and and I mean the guy's just 
terrorized me, you know, anything to, to hurt me. Uh, I remember someone's like, the office is a children's lawyer. Don't worry. They're going to listen to your side. And the man walked in and he immediately said to me, oh, you're from Christian Island, are you? And I knew I was, I knew I was fucked. I knew I was fucked. I was prejudged. And my stepsister was a social worker. She went to university. I phoned her about it afterwards because I, I was like, I knew, I knew I was going to like something, I'm going to lose my kids. Like something's not right here. Again, those like the red alarm bells are going off in your head. And the more I went to court, the more I lost. And and one day my dad came up to to Midland where I lived and he came up to see me and he brought me a check. He said, this this is from Gramps and you know, he wants he wants you to hire a lawyer. He said, No more you know, no more public lawyers. You're not don't we don't want you using legal aid anymore and he, they brought me a crap load of money and I went to, you know, this prestigious law firm in town and got a different lawyer and told her my story. And I got my kids back. And I got to support him, you know. I got to support him and my other son and make sure these tools, our culture, the songs, the stories, you know, even our connection to the land, to the animals, all those things, you know, those, the urgency to just make sure I've acquired enough traditional ecological knowledge to share with them so they can share it with their kids. And we all feel safe with one another. And once we collectively get our confidence back, I'm really excited to see what we're going to achieve because we have the most amazing people in our communities. My friend once told me that hope is in the people and, and I still carry that teaching with me and I still see it and I always look for the hope in our people. For question five, the last question, I asked if there was a role model who influenced the person they are today. Well, uh, I think my mother, my mother was very cultural. She's a role model to me. Um, she's passed on. I've just watched her, you know, how she carried herself, how she explained herself and how she could become very serious and how people will will know where she's coming from and would just respect that. And I'm kind of, um, you know, I wish I had not gone to residential school. You know, I would have had more time with her. You know, I got fragments of the learning from her. I love to fish. My favorite thing in the morning uh, when the sun came up was to be on the river and because I was fishing for her. You know, I, I caught minnows, but <laughs> nonetheless, um, she would praise me for that, and, and I honor her in my life all the time. When you think about what we've lost, it's the saddest thing. I could just cry right now. It's just so sad that um, I didn't get all of her teachings. The first one was uh, Patricia Montour. So I met, she's from my community, but we never met until uh, it was the summer of 1991 when I attended the 
the Native Pre-Law program out in Saskatchewan and Saskatoon. You know, just the strength of her voice and her writing, and she taught me to have a voice. She was one of two who taught me to have a voice. There was another Mohawk woman, her name Sylvia Miracle. Uh, Sylvia Miracle is from Tainanega. When I became president of Native Women's Association of Canada, I had asked Trish to be one of my advisors. I was never involved in politics before that at all, so I had no idea what I was getting into. And so my first event was this Kelowna Accord and participating in the First Minister's meeting and with the Prime Minister, Paul Martin at the time, and, uh, and being uh, prepared to attend this meeting. I was the only woman around the table, and I remember walking uh, with Trish, and Celeste McKay was with me as well, and a couple of the elders from NWAC. Uh, walking in and seeing the agenda didn't have violence against women as, a, as something that needed to be addressed. And I remember um, looking at Trish, looking around the table, there was all kinds of media. So when I had this opportunity and, and said it publicly, and basically the Prime Minister said, okay, we're going to deal with violence against women and we're going to fund missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We're going to fund Indigenous sisters and spirits. So that was basically to shut me up, I guess. And that's what they taught me as well as to acknowledge spirit and mm. to respect, respect our ancestors. I, I got to have this experience about the same time that the I Don't Know More movement started blowing up. My life had fallen apart just previously, and, um, and then this I Don't Know More movement came, and I was in a really dark place. My marriage had fallen apart, and I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was a full-blown coke addict, and I was completely trying to be in the closet about the cocaine addiction. Um, and then, you know, this movement came around, and all of a sudden, Anishinaabe culture came around. It was there through the movement, and I hadn't had that exposure yet. And so I was really excited to be learning things, and and then I ended up seeing on my timeline um, a call out for a water walk that women from my community, from Chimnasing, had had initiated, and they were walking around um, Georgian Bay, and there wasn't enough women to do that work and and that's i'm like that's what i need to do and i packed up my truck and my kid and i was like we need to go do this and and it was a ceremonial walk and that was like a really deep moment where i've really got introduced to my culture and again it was these women just the driving force and uh, I got to help build a lodge, and I'd never done that before. I'd never been into a into a Medeawin lodge, and I would remember being weird and awkward when I was there, and I didn't know what to do. And this woman, Gloria Ba, she she just smiled, and she's like, "You just come sit right here, Tori," and she pointed to the open space next to her, and you know, she's like, "It's all right. Your seat's always been here. We've just been waiting for you to come and take it." Um, just come sit with me. I'll show you what to do. And, and you know, that's what's been happening ever since. She really took on a mother role in that 
points in my life. And yeah, I really, I miss her so much. We've recently lost her, but she's really helped me understand and be compassionate and kind and gentle and humble. And all those teachings that people talk about, you know, that's how, how you know, my mentor carried herself. Yeah, and it was just the kindest, gentlest introduction into ceremony, into spirit, into our, our spirituality and our way of being. I want to leave you with one more story, one that I've heard Anishinaabe women telling lately. This is Canada Landback producer Kim Wheeler. The drum is the spiritual center of many First Nations cultures. Drums are used in prayer, in celebration, and for healing. There are songs for water keepers and women, for traveling and hunting. There are welcome songs that are played for the visitors. Some songs are private songs and can only be sung by the owner. Because it is used in these ways, the drum is a symbol of healing, courage, and wisdom. The drum is female. It is the heartbeat of Mother Earth. It was gifted to women by the Creator, and we then gifted the drum to men. This is the secret of our power. Next time on Candleland Back, Culture Back. by someone you know as an Indigenous journalist, but who also makes music, Brandy Morin. Thanks, Brandy. Canada Land Back is a co-production between Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. It is hosted and produced by me, Karen Pugliese, and producer Kim Wheeler. This podcast had support from journalist Beverly Andrews. And hold on for your life. Get a dream.
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.